0: Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, we are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to talk about the good, the bad, and the tricky of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. Now, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson, I'm a writer for the Geek Show, Byline Times, We Are Cult and Horrified, the British Hover website, uh, and I've been joined this week by... Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Pysak. Uh
1: I am uh, not a professional movie writer, but I'm a longtime movie fan. Uh, you can find me at letter on Letterboxd at uh, Scrambled Face.
0: And um, this was a film uh, I was really excited to find out that you were interested in because I've been fascinated by it for a long time. I think it's not as if there's a shortage of movies with rappers in but it, there may be a shortage of movies that have something interesting to say about hip-hop uh mostly they they tend to be like cameos in straight to video horror movies not naming any names snoop dog mm-hmm. um but yes this is tougher than leather uh, which is the Run DMC movie directed by their manager, Rick Rubin, uh, and also featuring a very notable cameo, cam- well, cameos from Slick Rick and the Beastie Boys. Uh, it's the first time I'd seen this, but you've got priors with this, right, Jeff?
1: I sure do, yeah. <clears throat> so as a young uh, kid growing up in the US, I was, of course, enamored with Run DMC when they came out, and, um, I didn't hear them until, uh, of course, the, the Walk This Way cover uh, exploded in the top 40. And um, it was one of those really uh, strong musical draws for me. Um, so by the time their, their movie came out, I, I had not even seen, I had not seen, um, and we may talk about this later, Crush Groove, which they had been in prior, um, was sort of the early run for uh, the story of Def Jam Records. Um, but I, I did have that soundtrack, and I, of course, was a big fan of the Beastie Boys as well. So uh, all that is to say, when Tougher Than Leather came out in not many theaters, from what I remember, um, <clears throat> but I did make a point to go see it, um, and you know, just to get this story out of the way, I actually, as I was maybe twelve, I think thirteen, maybe when it came out, and had to talk the uh, the guy at the ticket booth into letting my friend and myself in because it was an r-rated movie um i had never had any trouble getting into it. i mean i at that time i wasn't going to a lot of R uh adult type movies um but this one definitely i had to uh <clears throat> do some sweet talking and my i think if i remember correctly my argument was well it's a run dmc movie so how many old people do you think are actually gonna come see this? <laughs> Um, and eventually, yeah, he let he let us in. So uh, it was actually one of my first, you know, R-rated adult-type pictures that I saw in the theater without any adults with me.
0: Nice. Um, so that you mentioned being into DMC, and you mentioned being into the Beastie Boys. So this would have been around the the time it came out, right? That eighty seven, eighty eight.
1: Yeah, the, the the it says 88 on the film. I feel I my memory says it came out earlier, but I'm guessing not.
0: Um, I think it, it's one of those things, but I've seen both dates. So, yeah. yeah, who knows. I am not surprised that you said uh that it didn't show in many screens despite having these two massive bands in. Um Because one of the other major hip-hop films we've done for Pop Screen, me and Rob did a Patreon episode about Belly. And that was, though now a classic, was blackballed from a lot of cinema chains for fears that there would be copycat gang violence, which is one of those. I, I don't know if there's... Has there ever been a film where there's been, like... Gangsters coming out of it, shooting at each other in the foyer. I feel like this has never happened, but it's an omnipresent fear every time one of these is released.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I'm trying to think of a more of a more recent one. I remember that being Belly. I remember Set It Off having that kind of a concern when it came
0: out uh, with Queen Latifah. Um, I... That was that was one in Britain recently, a film called Blue Story, uh, directed Ooh. by Ratman. Um, a British hip hop artist, where there was apparently quite a violent fight in the foyer of some cinema when it, it came out uh, and it got pulled from Odeon, I think it was Odeon theatres. Uh, what the stories didn't mention is that the fight occurred among people who'd just come out of Frozen 2, which made for a slightly less gangster story, I think.
1: Right, right, yeah. I was gonna say. I mean, at least this one has some, you know, crime and violence actually in the story. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's wild.
0: It's it's quite an odd thing too, because uh, this is very early on in the cycle of gangster narratives in hip hop. I mean, there had been hip hop records about crime and poverty before run dmc had recorded quite a lot of them but this film really centers its appeal on it being basically a black exploitation movie where people rap that would go on to be massive in about four or five years time but i can't think of an earlier example of it than this no i
1: can't either um and i think it's I think it's telling that, you know, that those elements are there and that they're driving the story. Um, but the stars are kind of peripheral to that world. Mm. Um, you know, they're at least the Run, Run DMC being the stars. Um, you know, their their managers are, are corrupt and, and involved in these dealings. and um, But they themselves are, are really only reacting to that environment. They're already established as popular musicians when the story starts.
0: Well, yeah, even though it starts with that very uh, protracted and and kind of cool, actually, sequence of... um, Is it DMC coming out of prison at the start? Yes. Which is, I think, a better directed scene than most of what follows. Mm. Uh, It's got... It reminded me weirdly of the opening scene of the Blues Brothers, which I recently yes. did for our sister podcast, Directors Uncut. Yep,
1: yeah, I've always I've always thought the same thing. It definitely has mm. uh, and then the Blues Brothers being a Chicago classic. Yeah, so it's a local favorite here. But yeah, that that whole opening um, where DMC comes out and gets his gets his stuff back, and so they're introducing him through the, his his artifacts, his hat, his yeah writings, you know all the stuff and so uh, and then they finally reveal that it's him uh, yeah it is, it is a great shot
0: it's yeah. it's a great opener but i think it sets you up for like him and the rest of the band being as you say less peripheral to the crime story than they are but i i think there's a kind of honesty in that in a strange way because i i was thinking about run dmc's position in hip hop as i as i watched this and their music for it when they started out was like radically tougher and more authentic than anything that had appeared in hip hop for they didn't have that disco influence or that electro pop influence that people like sugar hill gang or grandmaster flash did it was just stark stripped back beats and rhymes often about the the difficulties of living life in a poor area and by the late 80s this is sort of starting to fork off into two paths isn't it where there still is that kind of tough uh minimalist rap music around but it's tending towards this more nihilistic world of what would become gangster rap while there is also still hip-hop that is socially conscious and about social issues but it doesn't sound much like run dmc it sounds like diggable planets or a tribe called quest so they are like standing you know it's like the old comedy bit with the guy standing on two canoes and having them slowly drift apart as they do the splits run dmc are really kind of paying for being such pioneers by being split between two hip hop movements that have indebted to them, but are also kind of different to them. Yeah.
1: I think that's a great observation because I think that this, I mean, 88 being like that really key moment in, in hip hop. Um, uh, you're right. Yeah. They, they were straddling those two kind of camps having that, um, that more social conscience as well as the, you know, the the tougher, um, you know, more boastful kind of, you know, we're, we're the kings of rock, you know, yeah uh, that kind of, that kind of approach. And I think that after this point, that's where Run DMC really, I mean, again, we might get into this later, but I, I think that's where they really started to struggle commercially because there wasn't quite the space for them. You know, there wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Hip-hop loves to pay tribute to the old school, but a lot of the old school artists don't tend to have that commercial long run. And I think that not long after "Than Tougher Than Leather is when that really started for DMC. um, Their records after this were kind of uh, floundering to find a a new approach or a a a fresh way to, to do what they were doing in the 80s
0: yeah i think that lack of nostalgia in hip-hop that determination to keep pushing forward that's made the genre like the most vital form of music right now has also been bad news for a lot of its pioneers and run dmc certainly are among the you know the crowd of people who did something that absolutely changed the genre that modern hip hop would be unrecognisable without. But once their commercial moment in the sun had passed, they were pushed aside quite cruelly. But watching this, I sort of thought that if that's the fork in the road, if that's the choice, you know, becoming a more gangster band or becoming a more conscious band, they probably made the right choice. I mean, it, it's slightly artificial but it's rooted in what they did before and it makes more sense than them just you know turning up at the studio with an arm full of Miles Davis records and being like all right we're a tribe called quest now you know that would have been really uh that that would not have worked at all I think sure
1: yeah no um yeah the uh the, the record after this one back from hell um is kind of a lost one but the one after that down with the king they if i remember correctly they had like onyx in people like the uh, uh, as their guests so again trying to push that you know we're still tough we're the originators but you know we're we're current and you know we've got these ruffians with us as opposed to q-tip or somebody like that you know yeah
0: Hey, speaking of ruffians, the beastie boys in this film.
1: Yeah, and speaking of Q tip, he was he guested with them later when they got teleporty feeling, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um yeah, what what a very strange because i 'cause I've I've been going through a massive Beastie Boys phase recently. I you know, I occasionally I just have moments where I really dive back into the beastie boys and I've enjoyed listening back to their Catalog so much, but this is very early Beastie Boys, and they're sort of it's weird because the film wants you to take them quite seriously, it wants you to believe they're quite scary, but they're also definitely the comic relief in this story.
1: Yeah, yeah, they, um, you know, they uh, of all the other Def Jam guests and stars that we have, have roles or cameos in here, they definitely have the most screen time. Hmm. and it's that you know uh, license to ill era you know a early um party hardy kind of vibe that they're they're still kind of pushing um that i think even by this time they were they were starting to transition out of um but yeah it's interesting it's interesting how um you know they're they're kind of the chaos factor they they show up hmm. in scenes they you know Uh, There's that long scene where Ad-Rock is hitting on the secretary uh, at the office, you know, and it's like a lot of the early parts of the movie. It's just kind of slice of life, feels almost improvisational. Um, But yeah, they're definitely the the comedy um, uh, factor as opposed to our main stars.
0: But also, there's the scene later on in the restaurant, uh, which ends with the sort of racist matrady uh, exclaiming in shock that the white ones were even worse, and that's like that is that gets kind of closer to the appeal of the Beastie Boys as they were then. I mean, it's it's very easy now to watch Ad Rock play, you know, the the guy with the the armful of cheesy chat of lines, who gets knocked back time and time again because it fits with our understanding that the, the beastie boy's license to will persona was just a big joke and you, you watch that and you think oh yeah i can see it but there, there's also this aspect where I, I recently read uh beastie boy's book the thing that um uh Adam Horowitz and Mike Diamond put together a few years back. And that's got guest chapters by all sorts of people. Andre Leon Talley, uh, Wes Anderson's in there, Uh, just a really eclectic mix, Colson Whitehead. Um, But there's a piece by Jonathan Lethem which says that in a strange way, Licence to Ill was the launch pad for gangster rap, even though it isn't about gangster narratives and it doesn't sound like gangster rap, the success of that album is what sort of put the light bulb on and thought, oh, rap music can make a lot of money if it scares suburban parents.
1: Sure. Yeah, no. definitely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I see a straight line from that early Beastie Boys to say early Eminem and I'm not just Mm -hmm. culturally, but like that first Eminem album is all about what a bad influence he is, what, you know, how you don't want your kids to be listening to him. And of course that's, that's the appeal for suburban kids, you know, to, to get that hook. Of course we, you want to listen to something that's going to piss off your parents. So yeah, they definitely filled that role. Whereas um, someone like Run DMC, Slick Rick, these guys were not even pushing any, any sort of angle. They just, they were who they were.
0: So it it's weird. quite funny because you could definitely market Slick Rick as a guy who was going to scare your parents. But <laughs> I guess at that stage, the idea that suburban white teenagers are going to be listening to Slick Rick was just off in space mm-hmm. somewhere. No one was thinking about that.
1: Right, right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see those personas play out. I mean, he I would I you know, I I don't know f- for sure because again I was a I was kind of a child at the time when this came out, but looking back, I'm shocked at how small a role like Rick played in here. Yeah. Um, you know, he shows up to do one song. You know, Mike I wrote down a note is he only opening one of the tour dates because we only see him <laughs> for, you know, one short you know, period of time, but like in my mind, he's definitely a, a you know a, a legend of hip hop. Who like you know in the in the grand scheme of things would have a larger place in something that was supposed to represent the culture.
0: Mm, yeah, definitely. And you know, it's it's that issue of is it supposed to represent the culture that is so fascinating because again, I guess like a lot of the original black exploitation films, this is you know black street culture and crime in the ghetto refracted through the directorial vision of someone who is white. And, you know, someone who is white and is deeply involved in the scene, as Rick Rubin is, but that's still the the contradiction of the film, right?
1: Oh, for sure, for sure, yeah. Um, you know, even I was talking to my wife after we watched it, and I mentioned that... Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't quite sure who was playing themselves and who wasn't. You know, the Run DMC, the, the three guys in the group are all playing characters named after themselves, but is 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 this their reality? I was um, you know, the Beastie Boys, uh, but Rick Rick Rubin is in there, but he's playing a character. Russell Simmons is there, but he's playing himself. Um and then the, the character of Runny Ray, uh, their friend who is their who becomes their roadie and uh, who's murdered, kind of dri- drives the the crime plot. Um, I as a kid, I always thought that he was just some guy who was part of their entourage, you know. And then came to find out, no, he was an actor. He, um, I think he, it looks like he was sort of involved in the scene in general, but um, you know, he wasn't playing himself. So again, there's that kind of blurring of the line between you know a, a, a portrait and a sort of a, a you know the fictional aspect of it
0: yeah definitely and there were people hanging around in their scene who were professional actors I mean one of the oddest things I discovered researching the production of this film is that around the time this was made Eddie Murphy was best friends with run DMC and would often come down to the set and hang out and I think the fact that Eddie Murphy isn't in the film is presumably down to Rubin's desire to reflect some sort of, you know, authenticity in the film to make it a portrait of the scene rather than just a movie with stars. But I have to say, if I had like one of the biggest box office drawers in the world right now hanging out on my set, I would, I would probably have turned the camera on him at some point.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, that that would have made sense. Um but yeah, you're you're right. It it in this world, uh even though, you know, we we're supposed to believe that Run-DMC are these big stars, um the it plays a little fast and loose with how that is portrayed. I was going to mm-hmm. say when we see them, you know, they're on a concert tour, they're performing in these spaces that look really small and we don't often, see the <laughs> audience, you know, so, I mean, yeah. obviously probably a budgetary thing where they were just kind of shooting in, in one space. But um, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we, we know at this time I and mean, they were playing stadiums, mm. um, you know, my cousin saw them <laughs> on, on the, the uh, raising hell tour, which was before this and yeah, it was in a stadium. I mean, he told these stories about it. So it's really interesting to, uh, to see that, that kind of, you know, we, we, we know they're big stars, we know everybody knows who they are, but also uh, the depiction isn't, you know, it isn't, it isn't puffed up in any way.
0: And I kind of like that. I think I I like that they are playing these pokey little clubs, even though it it stretches credulity, because presumably every single person who has ever watched this film is a run DMC fan. (laughs) and They know that this is post-walk this way. This is when they were playing stadiums. But I think that there's something about the size of the venues they're playing here that makes it plausible for a rap band where like their lead MCs just got out of prison uh they're in bed with these weird shady gangsters it it does although i don't think verisimilitude is in that sort of cinematic sense is the main preoccupation of the film it does help in a weird way
1: sure yeah and it
0: keeps that that
1: kind of um, gritty, street-level kind of vibe, even though we know that it's a sort of a fantasy. So, yeah, I think that makes sense.
0: Well, you can see that it's a fantasy in the scenes with Rick Rubin as Vic, who's like the main villain of this film. And Vic is the point where the film is sort of... At its worst, but also at its most fascinating, which is just something that sometimes happens with pop movies, because you do look at Vic and you think what demons is Rick Rubin working out here, you know, to make this film celebrating the scene that he has you know nurtured so much in the label that he co-founded and the artists that he's turned into international megastars and his role is the awful racist murderous white guy
1: yeah I, and and as a co-writer he gave himself some really choice dialogue so it wasn't like <laughs> right. i mean that was it was deliberate choice you know mm. so yeah yeah i i um, I want to say him and the, uh, the other guy who plays, um, Arthur. Oh, the guy with the beard. Rick,
0: Rick, Manello.
1: Rick Manello. Yeah. I was going to say he is also was sort of involved in the scene. I know he directed the fight for your right video, but, but those two guys co-wrote this. And so again, probably had some sort of hand in the scene, the two of them. And yet they, the, the characters they gave themselves were, These kind of sleazy, um, you know, uh, shady and definitely not uh, racially supportive, you know, Um, you know, both in like the words they have and their attitudes they they project, um, you know. So, I mean, yeah, it it could be that they were trying to kind of critique that approach or. It could be that they were, you know, just kind of drawing on that black exploitation um, tradition, where the villains are some white racist authority figures who are, you know, taking advantage of our heroes.
0: That's a fair point. Yeah, I, I'm sure that you know Manello is mentioned a lot in the Beastie Boys book. Yeah. He's mentioned as a guy who was just obsessed with films and had an encyclopedic knowledge of films, and any time Def Jam needed to do anything. Regarding films, he was the guy that uh, they turned to, so yeah, I'm sure he's he at least is capable of looking at the black exploitation formula and thinking, "All right, what's the rules for white guys here?" and there's one big one. But he's kind of an interesting guy. When he he came on, I had to get over my unease at first because I thought he was James Tollback, but
1: <laughs> once I realised
0: that he wasn't, um, I decided to check whilst he's done. Do you know what he did, who he's been working with in recent years? No. James Grey. Really? Yeah, he co-wrote Two Lovers and The Immigrant. No. Interesting.
1: What a wild leap! Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I, didn't even, I, I didn't look him up that far. But yeah, that's interesting that he's kind of parlayed into, uh, you know, a very different kind of cultural context for sure.
0: But it makes a certain sense when you think about. It. I mean, if he is the guy who's sort of the the genre technician on this movie, Gray's asset is that he is. You know very steeped in classic hollywood genre and he can mm-hmm. take something something like the immigrant which in someone else's hands is just a social realist film right? and and he can find the vincent minnelli or whoever his influences might be in it so yeah i think they probably hit it off
1: sure yeah no i guess that makes sense uh you know as a film fan for sure
0: But yeah, uh, the crime plot is sort of interesting. uh, And it's interesting in a way that I think uh, gangster rap never really gets past, where it wants to decry this attitude that hip-hop has something to do with criminality and also really milk the fuck out of how sexy and exciting that connection is at the same time. Uh, the best bit is when, um, again, I've completely forgotten which member of DMC it is, but one of the, it could be DMC again. He's watching uh, a white news reader pontificate about the link between rap, crack, and violence, and he just kicks the TV over like Travis Bickle and yeah. that's a very clear moral statement on that kind of panic around hip hop. And then it's back to a plot about rap, crack, and violence.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, uh yeah, I remember
0: I remember
1: when that when I first saw the movie, that, that being a thing. I was, you know, again, a kid who was attracted to all the bands I was told not to listen to um, because they were gonna rot my brain. And, you know, I was I was a pretty Good kid, quote unquote. So mm-hmm. it never really, it never really um, made sense to me. And that you know, that whole listening to something or, or being involved in the culture will lead you down the path of, of, of moral ruin or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I I remember that. I remembered that scene all these years later. I think I'd only seen the movie maybe once since that first time, since, until I just watched it and. Yeah, that seems stuck with me because it really, uh, it speaks to the attitude at the time that was already starting to uh, turn against hip hop as a cultural force because it had become so big so fast, I think.
0: And it's funny, isn't it? We should have a little pit stop and, and describe the sort of strange experience of being, you know, uh, extremely white hip-hop fans in the late 80s and 90s because certainly by the time i was growing up it's it was a much bigger cultural force in terms of records sold in terms of concert tickets sold in terms of you know what was vital and new that you had to listen to and yet there were still probably people who would not hear about any hip hop artists if it wasn't for the occasional news report about one of them being shot. So it was quite a fraught thing. I mean, the only pe the only person on British mainstream radio, like without going out to the pirate stations, the only uh, person on British mainstream radio uh, who was playing hip-hop consistently was tim westwood and i mean if we're talking about a white guy who was vampirically taken from the culture he has recently been revealed as one of the ultimate examples of that. So it, it, it's quite weird to look back on the 90s as a time which a lot of people would cite as a golden age of hip-hop and say, oh, that's when you had Nas, it's when you, you, Jay-Z was starting out, you had Tupac, N.W.A., Big e, the Fugees, and then think, well, unless it was the Fugees getting to number one with a Roberta Flack cover, the main place that you could listen to hip-hop in britain was like if you were willing to put up with this pervy bishop's son Mm. going yo 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 this is fresh in between the records it's (laughs) just it's unbelievable that such a vital theme would be treated like that
1: yeah that's that's interesting yeah i mean looking back from the u.s perspective it was uh, there were certain hits that were, you know, and the ones you, you would know, I'm sure, that were just kind of integrated with the pop the, the pop and top 40 culture at the time. Um, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, I think were the last time we really saw that uh, diversity in just our general, you know, you could turn on a general radio station and then you would hear... You would hear hip hop, you would hear, you know, uh, you know, maybe a folk song, you know, some really manufactured pop, something a little edgier, um, hair metal was big at the time, uh, again, more commercial type stuff, but it would all be sort of a blend. So I think that um, there, w- you know, if you wanted to specifically look for hip hop and stuff that wasn't part of that uh, mainstream push you you know, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince or, um, Young MC comes to mind, you know, some people, you know, they were all, some of them were kind of one hit wonders. Um, but that stuff was generally kind of selected and chosen for the pop ad audience. If you wanted to go deeper than that, you either had to know someone who was involved in the culture or, Turn to maybe you know college radio, where uh, where the DJs were being you know sort of like a pirate station, where people were a little more um, you know uh, less regulated by what's going to sell, and more in terms of you know this is music I like. So yeah, I, that was that was really it. But there, I mean, there was some representation, but it was very uh, gate kept, for lack of a better term.
0: I think probably the fact that there wasn't anything resembling uh, a like indigenous British hip hop scene probably kept it from being, um, you know, uh, from penetrating as deeply as it could have in the UK back then. It was still subject to that kind of attitude where people like, oh, it's it's just like Americans talking about drive-bys. What does that say about my life? And you think, well, you know, Nobody talks like this about blues music, do they? I'm not living in the Mississippi Delta in the 1930s, but no one looks at me weird when I listen to Mississippi John Hurt. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, maybe it was just the specifically the modern context, you know. Maybe yeah. it was the fact that, you know, this is representing the here and now. Um, If it is so geographically specific, then I can see where, you know, it might not resonate unless you're willing to look past that and say, okay, there are themes here. There are things people talking about that are universal.
0: Oh, it's just that old, old thing, I think, where people, as soon as a battle over something, particularly something in the arts, is fought and won everyone pretends that they were on the right side from the very start until something new comes out and then everyone makes the exact same mistake all over again and that was that was certainly happening with hip-hop at that point it wasn't really until the early 21st century that there was a a recognizable kind of sustainable british hip-hop scene but also you know who cares like nowadays when i listen to you know kendrick lamar talking about bereavement or megan the stallion talking about you know growing up in a working class environment i'm not like holy shit you know what's this about (laughs) i understand that it's not it's just yeah it's so patronizing to say that just because occasionally they name check compton that i'm just supposed to be sat here going what the hell is this about you know
1: yeah i mean yeah i think audience are audiences get smarter too you know yeah. um, you know kids understand you know as a kid i understood the difference between showing violence and creating violence, you know, for example, this movie, you know, I think that, you know, the, again, the gatekeepers, the cultural gatekeepers, they try to predict what will, what the reaction will be and and you never know. Um, So, I mean, in in that sense, I think uh, just music culture in general has gotten better because, because of the silos, because we know who we can trust and go to in terms of, um, you know, record. recommending something new and then um, having the perspective to understand, you know, how it can apply versus just uh, something you listen to. Like people, people come bring their expectations and their filters to anything they enjoy. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of information at our fingertips. If we don't know what the slang is or where Compton is, Google it. It's easy enough nowadays. So
0: it's also part of the appeal isn't it that when you have these very specific bits of slang again that was another very boring thing that very boring people used to say in britain about hip hop it's like all this for shizzle manizzle. what does that mean and it's like well you know, what does a what boppaloobo or what bamboop mean? You know, anytime there's a new scene, part of the appeal of it is that it has this coded language that's just for you, the initiates, to appreciate.
1: Yeah, and and I yeah absolutely, and I think that may be where people still get alienated from hip hop specifically because mm-hmm. because the culture changes, the language changes, the slang changes. By the time it catches up with the general public, it's you know the song's been out for six months and and is um has kind of trickled out. So you know I think that people, um, maybe people older people and myself maybe included, um, get. Yeah. A little intimidated, but you know, how much do I need to keep up with, with what they're talking about? And the answer is uh, not, not much. You can usually figure out from context or if not, you know, yeah. there's so much going on. You don't have to focus on uh, understanding lyrics immediately. It's maybe it's one of those things that six months later you say, Oh, that's what so-and-so was talking about in that song. And now I've seen it play out somewhere else. So um, yeah, that's uh I think that's going to always be an issue with something that is as uh, tied into language and how it changes as as hip hop is.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like what you said about being when you're a fan, you're able to. Um to understand the parts of it that are kind of play acting and that are kind of not to be taken too seriously and you can sort of separate that from the underlying attitudes it does remind me of something uh, that mark kermode always says about the evil dead which is that the, the original evil dead was controversial he says because if you were a horror fan you saw it and you found the excess so liberating, so funny, so cathartic, so outrageous. Whereas if you're not a horror movie fan, you watch it and it's just people getting ripped to pieces for 80 minutes. Hmm. And I think there's something similar here. I think Tougher Than Leather is most, for whatever attitude Ruben and Manello went into it with, it is most endearing as people play acting something that is kind of, that is real to them, you know, that is not false, but doing it in this kind of burlesque way that's quite cathartic. Sure,
1: yeah, no, I, I was thinking of the, uh, the example of uh, the stock music that they use. Anytime anything uh, sensual or sexual comes up, <laughs> they bust out the stripper, which is yes. the ultimate symbol of sensuality in 1988, you know? <laughs> was like, I mean, it's, it's a shorthand, and you get what you're talking about, but, like, is that something that's, uh, I think, a modern audience? Like, do they know the stripper? Would they, would they understand that that's supposed to be, you know, what that's supposed to represent? Um, you know, those, those shorthands... Um, they're always changing, you know, and even by, you know, this time, I mean, I, I don't know if that felt old, really old fashioned at the time, but it definitely does now.
0: Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it does. And I think some of those signifiers are interesting because they outlive their cultural moment. You know, it, it feels like only in the last five years have we seen an end to comedies where every time, something shocking happens, there's a record scratch sound effect. I yeah. think <laughs> that has that comfortably outlived vinyl status as the biggest selling music medium. But it's still something about that sound just says, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just communicates mm-hmm. it somehow. Yeah, and um, people can
1: pick that up from context, you know.
0: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, again, the sort of density of the, the cultural referencing in a very different way this time. Yeah. Uh, there was an interesting cut to this in the UK. The version I managed to get hold of was uncut uh, because it did have this thing. It played uncut at theatres, but around this time, the BBFC uh, were very paranoid about the idea that you, you could take a movie home on video and just replay the violence and brainwash yourself with it so mm-hmm. you often have this weird situation where something that was perfectly fine for cinemas would receive some quite arbitrary cuts um on the home market and the uk vhs release didn't have the scene of uh, the guy being interrogated by having his fingers broken <clears throat> Which I think is kind of interesting. Out of all of the violence, it's like that's the bit where maybe you squirm a bit. That's the bit which feels a bit less like play acting. I don't think it should have been cut, obviously. But I think the BBFC were kind of weirdly astute in recognising that, oh, that seems kind of outside of the kind of cartoon universe that the rest of the film takes place in.
1: Yeah. That, um, and that's another scene that always stuck with me when I would think back to this and that happened. And um, I don't I don't I don't disagree that that it does feel more extreme um, in the grand scheme of the movie. It doesn't it's it's not excessively violent. You don't get these gnarly close ups of the, mm. the prosthetic fingers breaking and all that. Um, but, it you know, it does seem a little out of character. Uh. Uh, for the for our you know again our heroes who are are tough but not uh and I guess looking not to kill anyone but yeah it does feel a little more extreme um but yeah I I, I am 100% anti-censorship so
0: I know absolutely
1: I, uh, yeah I can't uh, uh abide that but I but it does make sense knowing what I know about the BBFC at the time
0: Yeah, I guess maybe one of the other things that sort of shocked people about that is that we are talking about a uh, pre-24, pre-Jack Bauer kind of media landscape where you didn't have shows and films where the hero just tortures anyone every time they need like 50 pence to go to the shops with. Right? Get the waterboarding kit out. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I mean again, it, it you know, it
1: it kind of plays like a, a like a Mike Hammer, you know, he's just like a rough and tumble guy and he's going to get the information no matter what. And so that's just what they did, but yeah, I I, I don't think it's that extreme.
0: No, no. I suppose it, it is also probably a victim of that kind of moral panic that we were talking about the violence in films. That's one thing, but violence in films aimed at a hip hop audience is, you know, as we saw with Blue Story, still something that happens. And it's, it's interesting that this was almost directed with someone who had the very same moral panic turned on them just a couple of years later, uh, because Rick Rubin's first choice was that uh, this should be directed by Spike Lee.
1: Yeah, I had read that. Um, that was new information to me. Um, yeah, really interesting. And he, he turned it down
0: to do do the right thing which you know yeah. fair play uh, he did in fact do the right thing there but right. um it's interesting to imagine what what a def jam movie made in the late 80s would have been like with a young spike lee behind the camera
1: oh yeah i mean just i think visually the energy i think a whole lot more i think it would feel a lot less low budget i think spike lee did mm. Uh, turn those uh, those limitations into uh, strengths, and in, in the, the vitality of his films at the time uh, definitely comes from not having that that slick um, and more of those slice of life neighborhood moments. Um, I want to say one of the guys in this was in "Do the Right Thing," the uh, one of the um, one of the mob guys. I
0: recognize. Oh, right. um, I'm but, gonna have to look that up. Yeah, um, I don't remember
1: which one, but yeah, it was. Uh, so yeah, I, I, it makes sense. And again, it was around the same time that the, in, in New York that it was happening. It's, it's it, it, but it would be super interesting to see Spike Lee's Tougher Than Leather. I would mm-hmm. I would love to see that.
0: Uh, yeah, and you know, credit where credit's due. Rubin uh, got on that train early. I think Spike Lee would only have made. She's got to have it by yeah. this point. I don't think he'd even done uh, school days or anything like that so right. he was as uh, you know he could have been had he stuck at it as good a talent spotter in movies as he was in music
1: yeah yeah it, 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 it if i don't think rick rubin really directed anything other than this um so no yeah it's um it, it, it is fun to see all the other references he, he sticks into his other groups there. I mean, other than the Beastie Boys, you know, they had open and actually the, the scene you mentioned where it opens uh, with that, um, that first person shot um, the point of view shot uh, we hear Flavor Flav do, doing some riff over it as he's one of the other um, guys in the jail and, um, I was going to say later on, we see uh, there's a Slayer poster in the office, like an ear- another early Def Jam band.
0: I uh, did not know that. Yeah,
1: huh? yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, there was uh, Public Enemy sampled Slayer, and there was that was one of those uh, one of those uh, uh, cross-company uh, uh, collaborations that happened, uh, I think, in 88 as well, is when uh, It Takes a Nation of Millions came out. Huh? Uh, and then also, well, one last thing, just as long as I'm talking about it, Uh, There's a scene where Ruben is sitting in his office listening to Danzig. um, And that first album was also, I mean, he was involved with Danzig early on, but that was another uh, Deaf American maybe at that point, or maybe Def Jam still released. So he was kind of cramming in a little bit of all of that, along with uh, uh, that Junkyard band um, that I had to look up. There was a band we see performing, Earlier on in the movie, that's got some little kids in it, and they were apparently out of Washington D.C. and and are still going today. Um, But I, I didn't, I never thought about them after I watched this movie, and and just, (laughs) but they were another Def Jam band.
0: That's one of the beautiful things about these kind of package deal pop Mm -hmm. movies, though, isn't it? That you'll get, like, one or two absolute megastars. You'll get a few people who are cult artists, maybe someone on their way up who'd become big later. Mm -hmm. And then a few people who were just happy to be invited. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: again, it's it's an interesting portrait of, you know, that pre- jay-z era of death of def jam and 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 it was sort of uh, uh coming together at that time you know they like i said they had heavy metal artists they had hip-hop um they hadn't really branched into um like pop R and B yet but you know that was that was coming as well so but yeah it's an it, it i i find that stuff really interesting too and in that um it, it, it's, it's a portrait of what was going on at the time
0: no, oh, definitely. Um, anything else to uh, to observe before we close up?
1: Well, the only other thing that 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 I would call out, I mean, other than the fact that this has never been released on DVD to my knowledge, so very strange. Um, that. Or if yeah. or if it was, it was an early one that's out of print. So, but yeah, it's strange that that, that this movie isn't out there very easily to find. You know, it's not streaming anywhere, um, and. You know, just a personal note would be the other thing I'd note would be uh, the lady who plays the girlfriend of Rick, uh, Rick of Rick Rubin's character, uh, Lois Ayers uh, was an adult star, and she actually starred in the very first um, hardcore film I ever saw in my life called Virgin Heat. So I've always had <laughs> I've always had a, a soft spot for Lois Ayers. So um, and she has kind of a cool role in here actually. She helps them. Uh, with their revenge plot. So I just wanted
0: to is, shout her out. Is it one of the adult titles that's been added to Letterboxd? Because obviously my, my viewing experiences are now entirely built around whether I can write about something on Letterboxd.
1: It's the same here to be honest. But yeah, um, I don't know. I didn't actually look that up, but um, I don't know that it's that famous of a film. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's not there. I just, you know, uh, recognize her and, and honor her for her contributions. <sighs>
0: Shout out to Jenny Lamette, actually, while we're talking oh, yeah. about the film's uh, female cast, because she plays the main female role in this, uh, the daughter of Sydney Lamette, the granddaughter of Lena Horn, and would go on to write uh, "Rachel Getting Married" for Jonathan Demi, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I know. I noticed that she has some really interesting credits. Um, I think she's still producing, you know, the uh, the Paramount Plus Picard show. Uh, she right. had some some credit on there. So, so yeah, she's still working too, in, uh, but not in front of the camera.
0: Mm. Well, if you enjoyed that, we've got a pat- Patreon open at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, where you get Rob's reviews of Asian films that still need UK distribution. You get my Doctor Who reviews uh, and you get a bonus episode of this show every month among other things. Uh, If you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll already have heard Mark tormenting me with the British football hooligan film The Governors. That's been an experience. Um, But uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with our next free episode of Pop Screen. Until then, I've been Graham. And I've been Jeff. And we'll see you later.